this is Tom Wallace with Florida Funders, and welcome to another edition of our Florida Funders podcast. We really try to focus on two things here at Florida Funders in our podcast, and that's having really interesting guests on and learning as much as we can from them. So the one thing we as entrepreneurs and angel investors are always trying to do is learn. Everything's always changing in what we do and, and technology. And so there's, there's something always new to learn and somebody always new to learn from. I'm very excited about our guest today, and I'll introduce him in a second. Um, but before I do that, for those of you who are new to Florida Funders, we are a combination between a venture capital firm, we have several different funds, and a crowdfunding or angel investing platform. And we are focused on the state of Florida, or we like to say hyper-focused. So we're working on changing Florida from sunshine state to startup state, and we're trying to make Florida a state where our best and brightest entrepreneurs are staying here to start their companies and not running off to places like Silicon Valley and Austin and Boston and, and the like. So with that, we'll get started. I, again, am very excited about our guest today. I have with me Ilias Torres. Yeah. And uh, Ilias, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, thanks for being here. And uh, I and reading over your background, I mean, wow, you you have really, you have a great story to tell. I'm sure our listeners are excited to hear about it. I thought maybe we could start with you came here at a young age and from another country. And, and uh, so tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, thank you for having me. It's, uh, the story starts right here, right? Big part of the story. You're in Tampa. In Tampa. Tampa has a very special place in, in, in my heart because I have aunts that lived in San Francisco, Miami, and Tampa. So my mother was the last one of uh, maybe, I think it's like 11 siblings. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> That's a big family. It's a big family, right? So my, my grandmother, uh, which I love to death, she's, she's passed away. But um, because of her... She crossed the river, Rio Grande, in 1975. She'd been here for so long that she applied for, you know, immigration and for a citizenship. Mm-hmm. And she was able to bring her family. And we were the last ones to come. And so my mother had to choose, do I go to San Francisco, do I go to Miami, or do I go to Tampa? And she picked Tampa. And, and why did she pick Tampa? San Francisco was overwhelming. Uh, Miami was too much like home. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. she wanted somewhere. She she kind of planted that seed that we were going to integrate and we were going to be, you know, chasing our own American dream. You know, mm. and so we came here. And uh, what country is your family? I'm from Nicaragua. Okay. Yeah, Nicaragua, Central America. And so we we came here, and our first apartment we stayed with my aunt in in Himes on Himes. There was an apartment complex there, and then I lived in Armenia and Bush. Went to school to USF. I went to high school here. What high school did you go? Uh, Leto High School. Oh, Leto High School. And so I sure. went there. So it's like, this is kind of where I grew so up in the United States. States. Yeah. yeah. What age did you come here? I came when I was 17. So I did about two years. And how was your English when you came? Not good. Like when I worked at McDonald's on, on, on Hillsborough Ave, I couldn't even get the orders. I couldn't work the front counter. Mm. So, and I couldn't understand the orders that were being yelled out. I had to wait for the printout to show up because we didn't have screens. Yeah. 97, so it's like a printout, and we're like, Big Mac, no onions, <laughs> extra sauce. That's great. So when did you get interested in technology? I got interested at, at, an, at an early age. My mother had um, a laptop uh, at her university uh, in, in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. right? So I started playing with the computers early on. Kind of just loved tinkering with them, but there was no internet, there was no manuals, there was mm-hmm. nobody to learn from. I would always break it, and we had to send it to the IT department. 
but when I came to here, I kind of not speaking English. I kind of just I believe I have a big belief in role models and and, and people to advise you and to guide you. Mm-hmm. And a friend guided me to the application college application process to go to USF, and so. He was applying for accounting, so I ended up doing accounting because that's what... Oh, your undergraduate degree is accounting? It started as accounting, oh. but later I realized I had to switch it to information systems. Okay. Because it was like not what I wanted, but I was able to get into school. Yeah. And then switch to... And later go to Harvard. And later went to Harvard, yeah. For engineering. For, for computer science. <laughs> or for computer science. Which, which is the opposite, right? Most people do... Um, most people will do like anything else and they do an MBA after, right? Mm. And I was like, I don't, I don't want an MBA. I want, I want more uh, technical dedication. Right? So. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes me think about immigration and this country. And obviously you embody the American dream. What a great story. And we're going to get into more of the latest story here. And when people talk about shutting down our borders and not having immigration, I, I just don't even know where that's coming from. So you go from Harvard and then, did you go right to Harvard, or did you work in between? So, next to this building, this is 1311, uh, 1211 was the office of this program called Inroads. And so, what they would do, they would look for minorities, underrepresented people, kids in, in high school, mm-hmm. and connect them with companies for a four-year internship program. So, they, yeah. they sent me up to work four years with a company, so I would work in a different department every year. And then when I graduated from college, I would get a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, an amazing, amazing program. And I would have to go and train with them on Saturdays during the summer. Mm-hmm. And they would teach us, I don't know, how to be a professional or something. And that company was IBM? And that company was Bank of America, mm-hmm. Nations Bank at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I do remember that. And then so the round building, the Sykes building... Yeah, Nations Bank, and so I beer can building. We beer can building, (laughs) and so I I, yeah. So I was so I did that two years, and then that was my accounting. Remember, so I was accounting, Mm -hmm. Nations Bank, Bank of America. There you go. And then I switched to IBM part time, uh, MLK. But there was used to be a mall here, right on 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 Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, I I joined IBM as an intern there. I switched, and that begun my technical career. IBM 10 years. And I did Harvard while I was working while you're at, at IBM. IBM. Yeah. And where in, at IBM were you? Was it here in Tampa the whole time? I, I was here in Tampa during the internship, but then I made a big, a big step. I took a big step, right? I graduated from USF and I interviewed with IBM in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a, a career for that was also for minorities. That was also very helpful for me mm-hmm. where uh, we uh, we applied uh, for interview with kind of like a speed dating type of affair, mm. and we interviewed with so many managers and got a job in in, in Southbury, Connecticut. So I moved from here by myself. Actually, married my 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 high school sweetheart from Leta. Oh, wow. And my daughter is here today. Yeah, and uh, and so we went in and and moved to South uh, to Danbury, Connecticut. From here, and the cold first time seeing the snow, big shocker. And ventured into into IBM out there. Yeah, it's funny because when I got out of college and it's a few years back, and I have a degree in MIS, the company that everybody wanted to work for that you know that you want the Google of its day, the Microsoft of its day was IBM. That's who everybody wanted to go to work for. If you had your choice of any company you could work for when I was graduating, that's the company you wanted to get. So MIS is what I graduated. 
yeah. uh, from USF. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure you learned a lot there, but that's a, but you end up becoming an entrepreneur and that's a big switch to go from IBM to entrepreneurship. How did that come about? I think it's a, it's a personality thing, right? You said you just, I think it's happening a lot today, right? A lot of people are trying to figure out their lives, their purpose, their journey. And they're like, the, the association of being a cog in the machine, it's like such a tough thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, we talked about it, but I just personally did not fit with IBM. IBM moves at a much slower pace. Sure. Uh, all big companies all do, big, right? All companies do. I, I, I used to, you know, crap all over IBM, but I realized how, like, as my company gets bigger, it's just harder and harder to move faster. It's not sure. the same way when we were 10, 20 people. And so that kind of made me always feel out of place in the, in the, in the last two or three years at IBM. You know, I finished school and I had an itch that I had to scratch. And I felt like if I didn't leave and try it, I would die internally, like mm-hmm. inside. I was like, I have to take, take the risk. You know, it's funny because a lot of people, a lot of people are coming to me for advice and I'm kind of like, when I set them on the path, but I just jumped. I was like, I had to, mm-hmm. but I've done 10 years, right? Yeah. And so like, I learned a lot about programming, building, managing, leading teams, sure. innovating, inventing. All that was really useful. It was a fun, you know, fundamentals for, for my future entrepreneurship. But I had to just take the big leap of faith and do it. Yeah. One of the things we do here at Florida Funders, as you all know, uh, is invest in early stage tech companies. That's the main thing we do. And one of the things that comes up a lot is we're looking at investing in companies, portfolio companies is, well, they're competing against Google or they're going to compete against Microsoft. Obviously not the whole company, but some division of it or whatever. And it's funny because on our investment committee, some of my partners worry about that a lot more than I do because I've always had this theory is never underestimate a big company's ability to screw things up or not get it right or move too slow. And if you're entrepreneurial and you're fast and you're quick and you're nimble, you can usually find a way to compete against those folks. Absolutely. I mean, I think whenever you encounter as an operator, a, a VC that says, well, what happens when Google does this? Yeah. Right? It's like, it's just silly, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that um, there's two parts of it, though. If your idea is too small and it's just a feature or something, then yes, that feature is going to pop up and then you, you disappear. But if it's a business, if an area, if it's a segment, right? People don't understand that. Like, for example, for Salesforce, to incubate something internally. They have the condition is, I think I heard is it has to be zero to hundred million in six quarters mm-hmm. from scratch. Mm-hmm. If not, they can't fund it. Yeah. They don't have time. And that's why they want to buy a company that reaches a hundred. So you have a huge, you know, long runway to, to incubate and to grow your idea for anybody to pay attention to you. Uh, and for them to move, it's going to take a long time. Well, I think the other thing that happens with large companies, and I saw this, I worked a lot with Microsoft in my, in my past. I was on their advisory council for two years when they were the preeminent company of their day. And these companies get big and they just can't innovate. They're just not wired that way. They don't have any entrepreneurial spirit. It, it just gets lost along the way. And the company that starts out quick and nimble as they grow and get bigger, they become the... And that's why so many of them are so active in M&A and acquisition, because they realize that they can't build it internally. They don't. It's not going to happen inside. And so how many projects can they get from zero to, you know, look at Google, too. I mean, what what does Google make money at? Oh, well, ads. Their core business. They're in all these other businesses. I don't know. They make a dime in any of those. I've heard they don't. I don't know for sure. Google is very special, right? People are trying to understand that's a cash printing machine. Oh my right? gosh. And so like that, that yeah. can fund anything and, and everything forever. 
Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that it's, that's not the way. That's not that's not your main competitor. Mm. And it's a company that does not know how to do, for example, B two B sales. It doesn't know how to do cloud. Even cloud, right there, they have the most brilliant minds, and they do not know how to do cloud like Amazon does. Yeah. So it's you. You got to focus on your on your own idea, on your own company, on your own customers, and execute. You can't really plan for everything. Yeah. From the get go. So, what was your first entrepreneurial uh, venture? So my, my first thing, so what I did, my transition was really, as an, as an immigrant, I guess it's only immigrants, or maybe everybody, a lot of people have this imposter syndrome. What recruiters were telling me is like, you've been working for 10 years at IBM, you're not cut out for startups. And so the way that I decided to prove that was to work for startups nights and weekends, right? Mm-hmm. So I was just like be working at home, uh, taking con- consulting gigs, you know, and, and coding for them. Mm-hmm. So they would get to know me. And I felt that that was an easier way to interview. Maybe I, I, I'm without knowing it, I was kind of circumventing uh, discrimination on the application process or something like that because I was like offering my work mm-hmm. and people were like taking it. And as I was doing it, they were like, you should just join us full time. Mm-hmm. And in that world and that I started networking and meeting people is where I met. And this is in Boston. This right? is in Boston. Yeah. Okay. So I was in Connecticut for about two years and then. I drove one summer to Boston and I, it was like, I don't know. I was like, I was like, I need to get out of Connecticut. <laughs> it was like a sunny day in the summer, you know, around, along the Charles rivers with the sailboats out in the water and the skyline. And Yourself. I'm like, I got to move, you know? So mm-hmm. we moved there after being there about eight years around 2008 is when I met my partner, David Cancel, who's a, we done four companies together. We've been working wow. since 2008, like 13, 14 years together. Mm-hmm. And I met him through those people that I was doing some side gigs for. And they were like, we should all get together and build a company. And, and, but he had started something. So he goes, why don't you just join me? Mm-hmm. And he's also Latino. Uh, and I was like, I felt like connected to him. And I said, you know what? Let's go. So mm-hmm. I joined his first company, his company. In, in 2008, and two weeks later, the market crashed. <laughs> I was going to say 2008. That's a that's a, time. that's a treacherous time. What was that first company? What did you guys do? Basically, retargeting for ads. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we built a whole bunch of APIs where we were collecting information and interest from people. This was right before Facebook ads. Mm-hmm. And so we were selling that information so people can target an ad based on your interests and your and your demographics. Not a pretty business. You know, it's what like, was the name of the company? Lookery. Mm-hmm. And so we had some, some investment and about 10 people revenue. They sold part of that company to, to an ad company. And that was my first experience into the tech world. Surviving through a crash, layoffs, disagreement between founders, uh, not enough momentum, bad timing on the market. You mm-hmm. know, Facebook launched the F8, their, their, their platform. And they launched their ads, and so we were never going to be able to compete with their amount of data that they had. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot from that my first startup, first year. For you young people out there and founders who have never experienced the downturn, <laughs> maybe a brief one during COVID, which was all of about six months. 2009, 2010 was a really tough time in any business in this country. I mean, yeah. I, I think about just even as I drive around Florida and, and even my own street, there's just construction and it's great to see people are working everywhere and, you know, the stock market's been going, the stock market does not always go up for you. <laughs> and in 2000, 
2009, 2010, it was just brutal out there. I mean, nobody was making money. The unemployment rate was high. Nobody was building anything. Nobody was loaning anybody any money. If you had a business, you were just trying to survive. It was a tough time. Well, really I, saw, I saw both, right? I joined IBM in 98. Okay. Love and, this and, and so with with, the, with that boom, right, uh, I had so many friends leaving IBM to start companies in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they were like, wanting me to go do it. And um, I almost did it. I almost jumped. And I'm so glad I did it in a way. I don't know. I have no regrets, right? Yeah. But um, I, I had an offer in, in, in 99 to join a startup in New York City as a CTO. And my vice president, who's the guy who named the ThinkPad at IBM, John Patrick, he... I remember the ThinkPad. The ThinkPad, yeah. And um, he he called me and he he convinced me to stay. You know, he, he made some very interesting, uh, took some interesting actions and courtesies towards, towards my wife and I. And, like, he, like, took care of us in an emergency situation that I had, made sure that procure a race and this and the other things. And... And that, because of that decision that he made, and I stayed there for 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And then the crash right happened, so I'm kind of was glad that I stayed. That I yeah. Didn't. But so I saw that crash really get up and close, and then I saw the 2008, and I saw COVID as an entrepreneur, so it's it's good. So your, your present company, mm-hmm. which is really a unicorn, yes. and doing great, Drift, Tell us about that. I just when did you start that? Was it 2015? I think I read. Yeah. 2015. And, and where did the idea come from? The genesis and give us you know tell us the story there. Well, it, it's it's like my, my partner and I, David and I, are kind of like just bounce ideas together, and we've just been evolving. So we were we started with ads for the publishers to to target ads, right? Mm-hmm. But then we switched and felt that that was not the business that we wanted to build. And we wanted, and so we built a company called Performable in 2009. Because he had prior relationships and success, we were able to raise like a $3 million Series A in 2009. Mm-hmm. So raising money after that was crash, a big series. That was a big Series A back then. Today, awesome. that's that's not even a Series A. That's not even a Series A. Times have like, changed, but times have changed. And uh, we did that, and um, but after the crash too. Mm-hmm. And so no way. So we did a company where we started building marketing automation. We're building, you know, email nurturing campaigns, A/B testing on pages, landing pages, optimizing for getting leads. And so that's kind of like where we we switched marketing to the publishers to the website side. Mm-hmm. And we built that company about for two years, less than two years. Sold it uh, to HubSpot for for twenty five. And so we did that. And that was a nice exit. That was my first exit, and, and, and it was like congratulations. We took it to about a million in revenue in, in, in like a year and nine months, from zero to. And you sold it for twenty five. Yeah, twenty five times revenues. That's a good exit. <laughs> That's a really good exit. And, and so we did that, and, and we went into HubSpot. HubSpot at the time was about two hundred people, mm-hmm. and they wanted us to take ownership of the product development. Right, and so that was a fantastic opportunity right? that, that we kind of put ourselves in that position. So we worked really hard, rebuild the, the HubSpot team, the product organization, and kind of changed HubSpot to be, they went to, from being a marketing, a kind of marketing-led and then sales-led to be product-led mm-hmm. because we took charge of, of that and we just innovated really quickly, rebuilt everything they had built in order for it to scale to the size that HubSpot is today. And so when we took that public, my partner and I said, hey, you know, Brian and Dharmesh, we love them. You know, they're just human beings. If they've done this, 
hard going to be to start another company and take it to a billion, man? It's, it's, the thinking is simple, right? But underneath that, there is a really bigger purpose, which is we, we really want to represent Latino founders, right? And say, it is possible for us not to just be like um, an executive at a public company or a startup, but we can be the founders, can be the founders that we can create an organization that we can raise capital from the top VCs in the world. And, and then take a company, be billion, and then go on and keep chasing the dream to an IPO. And so we want people to show, we want to show people that it's possible. Right? Mm-hmm. So the vision, the mission for Drift is like, we want to be the new face of corporate America by the diverse makeup of our company, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the board and the investors and the SLT and the ELT and everything. So that's kind of been our theme. Of like, Where did the name come from? The name, uh, <laughs> the name of that company is so hard. Um, I'm a kite surfer. There's a kite named the Drifter, right? And that kind of like we were into like my partner and I into water sports. Uh, that's the first hobby I've ever learned in my life. Uh-huh. It's a I, I did not know what a hobby was <laughs> being from a communist country and and being an immigrant. I mean, I used to clean offices, dentist offices here in Tampa when I was in high school. Mm. And so there was no hobby time. Yeah, but uh, I took one hobby, which is kite surfing. And then this the kite that just drifts on the waves and it can handle the change in the wind and then the waves and the directions. And so mm-hmm. kind of like we registered the domain and, and, and made it a thing. You know, a lot of people worry about the name. It's like you, you make the name. You know, mm-hmm. The name doesn't make you. The vision for drift from the beginning, was it conversational commerce? Is it- um, not, not really. I mean, I think uh, it was it was about serving the customer and what we realized is that it, it started around messaging. It, I mean, it is true, right? And the beginning we noticed that the whole world was, was shifting to real-time messaging. It's 2015, believe it or not, but people mm-hmm. were not putting messaging on their website. Yeah. People thought this does not scale. I don't have the people to, to, to support it. Um, no, I remember because you know, back then we, I was, in, I was running an ed tech company and we had these little, you know, windows that would pop up when somebody was coming to our website and it would say, you know, can I help you and all that. And then there was no chat bot. There was no AI involved with people actually, right. you know, doing that part. And that's what you guys really exactly. automated, right? We automated that. And, and we also refocused it for commerce, right? We, we said, this is not for support. This is for actually selling. Yeah. And so what happens is that a lot of sales organizations, they're like working independently for marketing. And what we're doing is we're marrying marketing and sales through the website mm-hmm. by connecting the buyer on the website directly to the rep that mm-hmm. is the most qualified person to guide that buyer through the process. Right? And they can actually close them right there. Exactly. Yeah. Depends on the transaction. So that's and how many customers do you have using Drift? Uh, I mean, like, like we 50, have like 50,000 businesses, you know, using Drift all over the web. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah. And how many employees do you have now? Over 500. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. And then we're like, you know, San Francisco, Boston, Tampa. We have a Tampa office. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we have a Tampa office. How big is your Tampa office? About 60 people. That's fantastic. And we have an office in London and an office in Sydney, and we're expanding into Latin America, too. You mentioned earlier one of your missions was to prove that Latino founders could take money from some of the best, raise money from some of the best venture capitals, capital firms in the world. And, and you were successful in doing that, right? Tell, tell, tell our listeners about that. Our founders are always interested in learning about the, 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 the capital raising process and how there's always something of interest in that. It's a little bit of everything, right? I mean, I think that 
I mean, I think founders are, this is an amazing time to, to raise money, right? There's just so much capital oh out there. People are throwing money. But the question is, like, why is it such a small percentage of the VC funds are going to minority founders, right? Mm-hmm. Would it be women? Would it be Latino, Blacks, right? And so yeah. the question is, like, how do we penetrate that? And so we're trying to help that by saying, look at the VCs. Look, we can have the same amount of success, right? That's one. But the other, we inspired the the, the, uh, the founders to to keep trying, right? For me, it was a journey. I think that working with David, someone that had more experience than me, he was able to fundraise faster, the $3 million that we did. And then working at a company like HubSpot, uh, it allowed all of our firms that invested in us to get to know us, get our success, right? And so people don't realize that, that they could be working somewhere and they could be developing relationships with the investors of those companies. So you met some of your investors while you were at HubSpot that later would invest in Drift? Right. So Charles River Venture CRV invested in Performable that we sold to HubSpot. Okay. They were able to continue investing in HubSpot. At HubSpot, we had General Catalyst was the first investor in in HubSpot and Larry Bond. And then it was uh, Pat Grady from Sequoia was an investor in HubSpot. Well, those are three great firms. Three great firms. And so those firms got to know us. And as soon as we left HubSpot, we said, we're in. We want to support you, right? Our mode of operation was like, we work, we deliver results, people get to know us, and then people want to invest in us. So those firms came and they wrote us a check when just by the fact that we said we were leaving HubSpot, right? Yeah. We raised $15 million Series A. So that was uh, in 2015. So that was... Yeah, very impressive. Similar. You know, sitting in this seat, being a venture capitalist and looking at investing in, in minority uh, businesses, I can tell you one thing that we really look for in founders, and we love first-generation gen- immigrants. Yeah. Um, because one of the things we're always looking for, you mentioned you didn't have any hobbies, because we always like to hear that. Just like when we ask founders, what do you like to do on weekends? We like to hear work, <laughs> not, not uh, play golf or sail around the world or whatever. Exactly. And the first generation immigrants, I mean, have usually very strong or immigrants have very strong work ethics. And uh, so that's something we we love to see. We would like to and I know I speak for a lot of the venture capital community. We'd like to invest more in minority companies, would like to invest in more women led companies because the numbers, as you know, are kind of abysmal. Yeah. I think one percent of all venture capital backed companies are, are founded by by uh, black Americans and they're 12% 12%, 12%, 12% of our population, but we, we need to see more founders. So so you're, you're being a great role model and and what you're showing other Latinos and other minorities is, Hey, this is possible. And uh, I think it's great because some of it's cultural, you know, some of it's just believing. I, I always refer to Israel when it comes to this, because the culture in Israel is just amazing. It's just, it's just got, you know, kids growing up in Israel, they want to be entrepreneurs, you know, it's just, it's, they don't want to be rock stars. They don't want to play in the NFL. They don't have an NFL. They want to, they want to be an entrepreneur. And that culture and if it, it, it is what we need, in, in, in my opinion, in minority to see, hey, people like Elias did it. I can do it. Absolutely. And, and, and awesome. this is, is a great, is, a, is an amazing country, right? I mean, Israel is pretty good for, for, as a startup nation. Yeah. But the United States is the best, right? I agree. So, and so like, I think that we just want to encourage people to, the more people you know, take a chance and try this, right? The more wins we're going to have. And then it'll become a normal thing, right? That anybody can have access to the same capital and the resources to do it, the experience, the network. And it's also kind of connected to regions too, right? And that's kind of when I was like, 
growing drift, you know, mentors like Eric Yuan and others were like, you can't be in Boston and San Francisco forever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to go to a, a, a location that allows you to tap into the talent, you know, maybe lower the cost. Well, that was before COVID, COVID right? Mm-hmm. But they were like, I was asking some of my peers and they were like, oh yeah, I have an office in the Midwest. I have an office in, in Salt Lake City. And I'm like, where should I open an office? In, <laughs> Damn. And then, and then he, he finally hit me from the inside. I know the place, right? And yeah. So it's, it's um, because I would hear that, that you know, the, you are like the, the main ones here, right? But it was like so hard to find investors here before COVID, right? It was so hard. They would have to move. They would get so little. They would have to give such a big piece of their companies for it and not have the ability to grow. And there was no network. And so... Uh, you know, I started coming here. I've been coming here every year for, since I left and, and not seeing that ecosystem, but seeing what's happening now is like so exciting. And I wanted to bring Drift here to help cement that, right? Well, thank you for bringing Drift here. We love it. And, and Florida has changed a lot over the last pre-COVID and really five years. I mean, five years. It's just amazing what how much our tech ecosystem went. And I think everybody in Florida would tell you that's in the tech ecosystem, in, in our tech world, that we, in many ways, have benefited from COVID because so many people came from Boston and New York and California during COVID. And because those states were shut down and we were open. And uh, what they learned is what we already know is this is a great state, a great place to do business. And there's talent here and there's capital here now. And and many of them are staying. It's, what about the hobbies in Florida? <laughs> there's too many hobbies in Florida. There's a lot of hobbies. <laughs> you know, and there's a great quality of life, too. So. Great, great, great quality of life. And I appreciate it more and more now that I've been in the Northeast for 20 years. Yeah. It's like, uh, do that. But I mean, it's a, but the whole thing has to be, we need to kind of create a whole ecosystem that has everything, right? It has to have universities. It has to have companies. It has to have large companies. It needs to have exits. It needs to be able to promote the, those people working on those companies to start and get funding to continue the cycle, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's happening. I mean, I don't know how many unicorns we're up to in this state. I think it's, it's got to be over a dozen. And, uh, and, you know, they all those have been mostly recently, right? Yeah, pretty, very chewy and fanatics and, um, well, magically, it's not a great example, but they are, they are, you yeah, know, yeah. Right. connect wise, uh, connect wise, Arnie Bellini is one of our investors, uh, ReliQuest here locally. Uh, Brian Murphy is right. one of our investors, yeah. uh, Scott at Align. So a lot of cybersecurity companies. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's happening. And, it, and like you said, the more exits, the more millionaires that are made from those people, those early employees will become angel investors or uh, they'll or, start companies. Or start companies. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, it's really exciting. And we're, we're definitely we're, we're definitely starting to see it. I want to go back to your, your drift for a second, because we were talking about this a little bit before we, we started the podcast. And, and you just recently took a big round from Vista Equity Partners. And for those of you who don't know Vista, I have a background with Vista too. I sold my company about probably 10 years ago, and they're one of the preeminent private equity firms on the planet. Them and Tom, Toma Bravo, I right. kind of think of the two top. Toma Bravo, my brother ran a portfolio company for Toma Bravo that he sold the Rover Technologies for a billion six about two years ago. And I'm an LP of Toma Bravo, so I know that, that firm pretty well too. So I think a lot of our listeners probably don't necessarily understand the difference between venture capital and private equity. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, why don't you come in? Take my stab and explain yeah, this thing. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do that in front of a VC here, right? I'll, I'll try to... I think that... Um, so venture capital is like... They, they're big dreamers, right? They're, they, they believe... They want to believe in the largest outcome possible. And they actually like to invest in things at the earliest, early stages. 
that's what traditionally VCs yeah. do, right? Mm-hmm. They'll go out to seed, they go free product market fit, they go just believing in people and an idea. And that's what really kickstarts everything, right? Because we need, we, we need a, a company basically needs different levels of investment and support and resources throughout the entire life stage, right? Mm-hmm. It's like in, the, in the life stage of a company is minimum zero to 10 years, right? And people don't realize that when you start a company, you have to say, absolutely. Like the best companies in the world, like IPO in 10 years, like, like that's yeah. the best. And so it's going to take 15, it's going to take 20. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning, you need someone who's going to believe and trust in you and just say, here's some money, go do whatever you want. Like we can't, there's no way to measure it. There's nothing. And, and you have to do that. But as you're growing, right. And you're going to the next stages, you might need different, different vehicles right, to keep growing and sustaining the capital that is, you know, the lifeblood of the company, right? And so you might, there's there's VCs that will do a Series B, Series C, and they start calling themselves, you know, growth investors because they're, they're, they're trying to help the company grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's kind of VC. VCs are going to give you, in some ways, a smaller amount of money for a smaller percentage of your company, between 10 and 20% of the company, to have a part of it, and they're kind of, you know, the best ones tend to be non-intrusive, right? And it's like basically let you. Do yeah, that. we're minority investors. I'm speaking yeah. as venture capitalists, so we, we, you know, we can't run the company. We're backing management teams. We're not looking to put in a management team, or, you know, so we can't because we're more. We might take a board seat, but we don't control the company. Right. Because of the nature of VCs, you you own less than than twenty percent. Yeah. You know, best case, and so because you just. If you know if you're raising ten million on a hundred, that's ten percent of the company. Yeah, and, you, and we also know we're taking a lot of risk, and a yeah. lot of the companies we invest in are going to fail. Right, and so yeah. what you what VCs want is like they want to invest in a lot of companies because they're expecting one of those companies to hit a hundred x. Exactly. Right to pay for the for the fact that there many of the other ones are going to fail. So growth investment then goes to they're expecting a three x. So they're going to be higher scrutiny of who they give the money based on the numbers and the projection of the growth of that company. And so you could be erasing that and trying to go an IPO. That's the, what everybody's kind of understands. Like you build a company, I want to take an IPO. However, there's other kind of partners and private equity is another one, right? Where uh, private equity deals differently in that they are looking to, to be a lot more involved, right? They want to put a lot more money uh, on the table because Typically want control. They want control, right? And so they want control because they want to make sure that, for example, Vista is a, is a firm that one of the biggest advantages that they provide is they want to help you uh, learn how to uh, operate at a higher level, at a higher level. Of, the Vista playbook. The Vista playbook, right? <laughs> it's a, like, they're like, okay, we have so many companies that have like almost 70 companies and they want you to learn from those experiences of the other companies. And they'll come. No, I got to ask you about that because I almost took, I, I sold a company at Vista, but we almost took money from them at one point in my one company. Yeah. And I remember talking to them and I said, okay, so let me get this right. You know, you got this playbook. And so you're going to tell us this software, you know, we're going to run Salesforce and we're going to hire people this way and we're going to do everything this way. Like, how, how much can we deviate from that? And they were like, well, not really. <laughs> you know, do they still do that? I'm not a big James. No, I, I think I think because um, I got to believe you guys run HubSpot for a CRM, but maybe not. Actually, you're Salesforce. I mean, HubSpot is for small businesses, right? It's like once you start getting companies over 500, 300. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, 
Salesforce is the de facto standard. Yeah, we actually run Hobby Spot here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. And so, like, I, I would say, um, so yeah, so just to close on the Vista stuff on the on the private equity, they'll come and take a majority, and then they will put up to 51 percent of the company right mm-hmm. to buy equity from you. It's non diluted, right? And so you're like, you get to sell some of uh, some of your equity, and in our case, we were able to share that and give the same access to every employee in the company for us now to partner with them to take this company public where we are looking, you know, like we're going to grow 3x, 5x, 7x or more yeah. from here to an IPO. The other thing for our listeners, if you know, two things I would, I don't know if you agree with yeah. this, private equity typically, you know, sometimes they call it two bites at the apple. So you sell part of the company, you get, you get a paycheck, you get paid now and then you're yeah. along for the ride and then you get a second bite at the apple. Absolutely. And then the second thing private equity in my world, I distinguish it is they typically put leverage on the company. So they're, they're investing 300 million or 400 million, whatever it is in a company. They're not writing a check for that amount of money. They're borrowing a fair amount of that money and the company they're investing in is profitable and it's going to, going to pay, going to pay the debt. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Right. And so you, you, you want to expose yourself and understand how all the things work, right. And how there's different players yeah. and how to deploy capital, how to make, you know, sound financial decisions on how you grow your company. Right. You can take VC, you can take growth, you can take PE, you can take that, right? Mm-hmm. And and you got to use the right combination of tools to, to engineer your success and whatever the definition of your success is, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think that it, I definitely encourage founders to, to learn about all the options out there. Yeah, I agree. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of founders think that's a bad thing. When we were running our tech ed company, we we actually preferred debt. So if we were acquiring a company, we'd try to put as much debt on it as possible. We being me and the management team, yeah, because we didn't dilute. If we took money from the private more money from the private equity guys, then we as the the management team diluted. So we Absolutely. actually preferred debt in many ways. Depending on the on the revenue and the momentum and the growth of your company, you take that, and that can expand your runway for a much bigger round and, and save a lot of money and save a lot of uh, equity. So I mean, it's it's. You can't be too greedy, but at the same time, you have to be really smart, right? Yeah. So it's, it's good for people to know more about options. I don't, I don't think I was like studying all these options when I was in the Series A company, Series yeah. B company. So the company we sold to this, I think it's kind of, you, you, this will not surprise you. We, we sold our, this company to them and we got, I think the number was like 50 million for, the, for this particular company. We rolled some equity and 18 months later, business sold that company and we got double. <laughs> we got another 50. We only rolled like 20%. So it was, they did a great job for us. So we were big fans of this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's what I'm saying that people don't, don't understand, right? Is like, where can you find in the market things that you can do at 3x, 5x, 7x, right? Yeah. Uh, on, on a short amount of time. And so it, it's a, you want to leverage their expertise at running companies that network. Who do they know in the market? Plays that they run before. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Vista bought Marketo and sold it for $5 billion, right? Mm. Two years later. And so that was a, an amazing success with Adobe, right? And so those are kinds of uh, the things that prompted David and I to, to make a decision to partner. And, and we love what Robert Smith is doing too. As, as, as a, Robert Smith is the founder of this equity okay. partners for those people who don't know. So that's the one that we felt. He's the one, by the way, that he was giving the commencement address at, I think it was Moorhead State yeah. or some school, and he said to all the kids, I'm, I'm covering all your, your, your student debt. I'm taking, I'm paying for it all. Totally. <laughs> Which was really cool. Yeah. So that's, and my, he's a minority. that's my dream. Right? Yeah. He's an African American, yeah, extremely yeah. successful, and I want to, I want to be able to someday do the same thing. Yeah, that's a great so dream. We take Drift Public, and I go give a commencement speech, and we say, 
Latina, imagine I could do this at USF and say, all you, all you student debt is pay. That's awesome. We're getting a little short on time, I, but I definitely want to touch a bit on Florida. Yes. You, you know, you, you're in Boston. You still live in Boston full time, right? Right now, yes. Getting back to, you've got an office here in Florida, the tech ecosystem in Florida. How do you see, uh, would you ever consider moving Drift here? The headquarters, do you see, where do you see Florida you look at five years? There's a lot of people, especially Tampa and Miami, that are saying Florida is really the next Austin. You know, we hear that, especially Miami. We hear that in Miami. We hear, you know, t- Tampa, similar things. How do you, as an outsider, even though you're from here because you're not a complete outsider, how do you look at that and how do you see that? The truth is that if you look, now that I lived 20 years in the Northeast, right, mm-hmm. there's like, only a few options for, for great weather and, and quality of life. It's like, I don't know, that's the truth, I think. I mean, California is great, extremely expensive. And then you have Austin. Maybe you have maybe the southern states, right? Maybe you have, you know, Carolinas, Atlanta, and Florida. Out of the 50 states, there's very few that have access to, to this lifestyle, to this quality of life, to affordability, mm-hmm. uh, to people, right? It's, it's really rough uh, being in, in, in the winter in Boston, right? In, in the Northeast or in the Midwest. And so I think that it's, it's kind of like real estate. There's just not that many uh, places where you can go. So if you look at those options, I have a personal attachment. So people will pick different places or where they can go. But that's why you see this huge boom of everybody wanting to come to Florida. But in the other day, you put everybody from the United States looking for a different, a better place to live. There's only like five options, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that in itself puts it forward in a very special opportunity. And so I like it. I like it here for, for that. I appreciate it. I like the people here. For me, believe it or not, 20 years in Boston, I don't feel like a New Englander. Like, uh, it's like I go clamming. I, I, I make my own clam chowder. I go in the water in the winter, like <laughs> in the snow. I, I don't have to wear jackets. But the people in the community... It's something that I started realizing in the past five years. Every time I came here, I felt like I was home. But I think that's one of the things people learn about Florida when they come here is it's very inclusive. Everybody, a lot of us are from somewhere else. I'm from originally from from up north. I'm from Pittsburgh. And it's a very welcoming place. And it's not, there's not, you know. Tampa specific. Yeah, Tampa. It's just awesome. It's not immigrants. Yeah, it's not some blue blood organization, you know. That run everything and you can't break into it. It's just the opposite. Everybody here is very open and welcoming, I think. And, you know, that's part of our culture. And the other thing, the other thing I think we've got going in Florida, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Elias, is, 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 is we're very entrepreneurial as a state. Yeah. I mean, there aren't huge corporations. Like I grew up in Pittsburgh, you had Heinz and USX and Alcoa and uh, Bear Chemical, all these huge companies. And again, when I got to school, that's what everybody, all the kids, we want to go work for these big companies. Where Florida, we don't really have that. So it's a very entrepreneurial state. Yeah. There's a lot of small companies. Small People are scrappy and entrepreneurial here. And we've had a lot, you know, the companies that are here have been grown here. And met by many of our investors, by the way, Optex, Steakhouse, Tech Data, those guys Absolutely. are all our investors. And, and uh, just they started their companies here from scratch. And what you need to do is marry that entrepreneurial spirit with resources, education, right? And also funding. Right, and that thing—that's what we're missing. And the other thing that is that's happening. what we work on here. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're trying to do the funding part. And then the other thing I would say that it's that's missing, um, that it was missing, is the infrastructure of the city. I mean, I think what Vinick has been doing, Water Street Development, is it's like tremendous. Like how downtown is changing. Like my daughter was driving into the office today, and she's like, 
I love downtown Tampa. Right? Oh yes, it is just, just amazing. So I think you you have to have every variable. You have to weather helps people, you know, for the mental health, and you have weather. You have beautiful places to go, restaurants, and people places you take your family on the weekend when you're not working. Uh, you have uh, funding. You have an entrepreneurial spirit. You have an open community. You have uh, welcoming to immigrants, diversity, low taxes, low taxes. I mean, it's it's really pro business, pro business. So we're like, it's it's, it's a many many of the right uh, ingredients, the right variables for a successful ecosystem. But it takes time. But it's like years ahead of what it was five years ago. Yeah, I think we have so much momentum coming out of COVID and the pro business part. I. I think sometimes people underestimate that because if you look at what California is doing with all the regulations and all the, you know, it's just not a, it's not a very pro-business state. And to a certain extent, New York is probably a little bit guilty of that. And, you know, with our governor and, and uh, our government here that, you know, they, they're, they're very pro-business. They want businesses to survive. They want less regulation, less red tape for businesses. Before, before, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to San Francisco next week before I get crucified between Boston, San Francisco and Florida, I want to play the Switzerland. But maybe maybe California is starting to become the big company, right? And and they and they're gonna have trouble innovating and, and Florida could be a startup, right? It's like nimble, faster, you know, iterate, innovate, try things, fail fast and keep moving, and maybe create like some of the you know, the next generation of unicorns that can't be created anywhere else, right? Yeah, and the other thing, you know, it's always it's always come down to the, the main two things are talent and capital. Yeah. There's so much capital here now, you know, that's so no longer an excuse. And the talent there's one thing we all learned at COVID is, is it's, it's virtual and it's mobile. So yes. it doesn't all have to be right here and, you know, it starts somewhere else. And but I care about the people here, though, because sure. there, there are people that, that grew up here, that want to live here, and, and we don't want to have to force them to go somewhere else to find their own success Absolutely. like I did. I want them to be able to know that they can access it here. We want to develop the talent. I mean, USF is really close to my heart. It's my alma mater and, and a place that is like the number one success school for Latino students in terms of graduation and the size. And so like, I want them to know how to find jobs and how to pick the careers. Uh, one of the things we started doing, myself, my family, right, is we started sponsoring the same Latino scholarship that I received when I was here. You oh, that's Latino awesome. Scholarship. Now I'm sponsoring students to go there. Uh, I'm smaller scale than Robert, but uh, we're going to keep increasing that. You'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Elias, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, what a great story you have uh, and you know your success. Congratulations. Really appreciate you joining us here today. And if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, can they? Get yeah, absolutely. It's, it's hard. It's, it's like I'm drowning, but uh, you got to be persistent, right? I think like every sure. entrepreneur it is. And, and like I said, I have a special, a special place in my heart for, for Tampa entrepreneurs. So like when Tampa area, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, everybody knows let's not get sensitive there. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Reach out. LinkedIn. You know, just find me on LinkedIn, send me a message and keep pinging me until I respond. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Well, uh, that wraps up our show today. I want to remind everybody, if you're interested in learning more about Florida Funders, just go out to our website, floridafunders.com. We have two sides of our website, one for investors and one for founders. Founders, if you're looking to raise money, you can go on and apply. Take you all of 10 minutes and you'll get in our process. And who knows? Maybe we'll end up funding you. So thank you and uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us today.